Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. The Tennis Abstract Podcast is a weekly recording of me, Jeff Sackman, and my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Uh, We try to touch on all of the tennis news of the day and give it an analytical twist, so we hope you enjoy it. You can always find us at podcast.tennisabstract.com or on iTunes or on Stitcher or anywhere else you get your podcasts. So there's a ton of tennis news to talk about right now with a big event just now in the books and Roland Garros qualifying already underway. And the biggest story of this past week, in my eyes, is that someone outside the Big Four, someone of the most recent generation, uh, someone born later than 1988, finally won a big title on the men's tour. Carl, I know you've been following this story, I guess, uh, for, for a long time. Can you tell us what this means in men's tennis for Alexander Zverev to finally topple the big four and, and win a big event like Rome this past week? For now, I don't think it means that much necessarily, but it is an important milestone and an end to a Twitter thread that I started quite a while ago, noting that no one born 1989 or later had won a master's title, a major world tour finals or Olympic gold. And there are at least 14 opportunities like those every year, and the oldest 1989ers are now 28. And that is past peak for tennis. Even today, probably, it's on average around peak or past peak. So it was just a bizarre drought that I tracked at the end of every tournament and or at the end of their run in the tournament, which often came before the final, sometimes before the semis. And I think more so than Zverev's run to the title in Rome, which was certainly significant, but he didn't have to topple all the big four, just Djokovic, who's been kind of like a a quasi-member of the big four this year overall. Uh, it It's more, I think, that there's been an accumulating knocking on that door in the last month and maybe somewhat earlier this year with some big wins by Kyrgios over Djokovic. But Dominique Team has come close or at least reached finals, and he beat Nadal in Rome. So between Team, Kyrgios, and Zverev, it now feels like there are three guys who could topple any of the big four and maybe even win a major, and all of them are from that younger portion of that next generation. So there's still the big hole where Milos Raonic, Kane Ishikori, and Grigor Dimitrov seem like they would take over. They still haven't broken that hex, but the the next group, I, I hesitate to call them next gen, and only Zverev is by the ATP's definition, but the next bunch seems like they really could lead tennis for a while. So let's talk about Dominic Thiem. Um, he, he's quite a bit older than Zverev. He's, I think, more than three years older than Zverev, but by the standards we have, we're working with today on the men's side, he's still pretty young. And he's played Nadal now three times on clay. They first played in Barcelona, then again in Madrid. And team did look better in Madrid than he did in Barcelona. He challenged Nadal. I think he won the first set in that, that match. And then in Rome, he, by the scoreline, it looked like a pretty decisive victory. I think it was a little closer than that. But it, it did serve as a major milestone for team. And then team went and, and played Djokovic in the next round and got absolutely throttled, 6-love, six 6-1, six by, by Djokovic. So, Carl, what do you make of that? How, we, we talked about this last week, that, that team 
is at least in the conversation as a number two favorite for Roland Garros behind Rafael Nadal. Now, you took issue with that when I mentioned it last week, but he's certainly in the conversation. When he manages to overcome an obstacle like Nadal, but then get crushed so severely by Djokovic, what, what do you think that means for him going forward? Is is he a serious threat at a, a clay court major, or is this Nadal win something that we shouldn't expect to see on a regular basis? I think both. I, I don't think we should expect to see him beat Nadal regularly, and certainly not on clay. I'd pretty much always favor Nadal in that matchup, and team is probably strongest on clay too. But I I have to give him credit also, not just for having a very good clay season so far, and not just beating Nadal in Rome, but playing him very tough in the Madrid final. I think one of the closest two-set matches you can see. And also for making the semis at the French last year. So he really did have the first breakthrough at a major of this bunch. Kyrgios hasn't made it that far. Zverev hasn't made much noise at majors at all. And it's a different format. So I I can't blame his just complete route by Djokovic entirely on the format of a Masters, but it certainly is different that you have to come the very next day after beating the best clay quarter of all time and then play the best player of the last five or six years on the men's tour with without a break. Uh, you know, it's also best of three. It could be that it would go even worse in best of five that he wouldn't have even beaten in a doll. They wouldn't have closed out that match. But I don't want to make too much of the blowout loss and you know, Djokovic also was playing at a level that he pretty much hasn't all year, as he himself said, and maybe hadn't for much longer than that. So, yeah, I don't want to overstate the effect of 6-1, 6-love, but I, I do still think Djokovic has a better chance than team of winning the French Open. And what was encouraging about Rome, even more maybe than Djokovic just throttling team, was that he got to that stage and he, he did it in Madrid too. And that maybe he's now going to be more solid early in tournaments and then can play himself into the form that we saw in that semifinal later in tournaments. That That's what he needs at the French open is to get farther than he did at Wimbledon last year at the Australian open this year to not lose to someone ranked well below him so that then he can compete and have a chance against guys like team and Nadal later on. And that's something I think is is encouraging, something for team to take away from this last few weeks, is even if he did lose two or three matches against Nadal, you wouldn't favor him against Rafa. He did get thrashed by Djokovic. He he did do what you're saying Djokovic needs to do, which is just beat the guys you're supposed to beat. As This is something you mentioned, I think, a couple of episodes on this pod, ago on this podcast, is that it, draws do open up, and... For, for someone to win the French Open who isn't Rafael Nadal, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll have to go through Nadal. And for someone like Team, that might be the way to do it. I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't favor him in best of five against Rafa, but he might be the guy most likely to get through a draw that opens up a little bit. We've seen Djokovic with some, some pretty ugly losses against people he shouldn't be losing to this year, and certainly the same can be said about Andy Murray, who has played his way out of this conversation almost. Uh, and, and team is the one guy who's, besides Rafa, of course, who is regularly beating the guys he should beat. Now, on Djokovic... Just one one sort of uh, deliberately silly point on that front is that you can make the case in that, in that vein that Zverev, while he played really well in Rome and, and winning 6-1 sets against Isner and Raonic on any surface is impressive and not yielding a break point to Djokovic is impressive... 
you could say the draw opened up for him and that he didn't have to beat Nadal or team who have been overall the two best clay core players this season. So that, that's a little snapshot of a draw sort of opening up for a guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's often what happens. Even, even some of the, the big four titles that are, are memorable, you know, obviously sometimes there are cases where Djokovic has had to beat Murray and Federer or Rafa's had to beat two of the, the, the rest of the big four or other people who are playing really well. But there's a whole lot of titles that they've won that came because those other guys either didn't play that week or, or lost early to someone else or lost to each other. So, I mean, it happens, absolutely. And... And yeah, you don't have to beat the best players. I mean, it's a it's a simple point, but I think it's one that gets overlooked a lot when everyone starts writing up their previews for draws like the French Open. Is people think in terms of who will beat the favorite, rather in terms of who's most likely to win if the favorite loses, and it's it's not always the same person. Um, I did want to talk a little bit more about Djokovic. Uh, he did have that really positive result against Team, but then it was a bit of a dud in the final against Zverev. Zverev is someone who to put it in the terms of what we've been saying, someone that he should beat, someone he's beaten before, I'm sure. Um, Carl, do you think that that the Zverev loss is going to hurt him going forward? Do you think that that he would he would maybe be better off losing to someone like Nadal or Team, who who he arguably should be losing to on clay? I think. It, you're, it's just bad to lose, and it doesn't mean a whole lot who he lost to, it, in the sense that if there's any effect from losing to someone and then having to play them again and that weighing on you or just being a an indicator of how the next match will go, it's probably better to lose to Zverev because just because of the nature of Zverev's ranking and the draw, he's probably less likely to play him, at least in a big match at the French Open, and also based on Zverev's track record. And... I, I also take the view of it's not just who he lost to, but kind of his overall level of play. And while his play wasn't great in that match, Zverev was off the charts good. And if you take Djokovic's overall level of play over his last three matches, even including something of a dud against Zverev, it was pretty damn good. It was good enough to win the French Open, I think, uh, in straight setting Del Potro, even in a rain-delayed two-day match, and then coming back later the same day, he finished off Del Potro to just totally route team. I think if he had played those matches slightly worse and the Zverev match slightly better, we might be celebrating Djokovic Rome champ right now. So I, I think he should feel pretty encouraged from this one tournament and a little bit for Madrid, where he played a pretty good second set against Nadal and reached the semis. And that's enough for me to see him as a pretty good contender for the French. Now, speaking of what to take away from losses, after Nadal lost to Dominic Team this past week, one of the sort of insta-takes on Twitter was that this was somehow kind of a blessing in disguise for Rafa, that he gets a few days off, um, he doesn't have to play tough matches to finish off another title, so he basically gets a little more a little more breathing room. Do you think it... it there is actually a case to be made for that? I mean, the, the extreme version of that position is that it's actually better for Nadal that he lost on Friday than he continued to go undefeated on clay. And I, I don't know whether people are really holding that as extreme of a position. But Carl, where do you stand on that? Do you think there are, are benefits for losing a match that you were expected to win? I think there's some extreme case where he wins that match, but it's extremely grueling, which it probably would have because it was a pretty tough first two sets. And 
he expended some energy getting back in the first set. So I guess there's a scenario where he plays three hours to win that and then has two more three three to four hour bruisers to, to win the title. And maybe that stays with him. I think some people still blame uh, his losing to Soderling at the 2009 French Open, which was his only loss in his first 10 or 11 French Open, something like that to a really bruising Madrid final against Djokovic earlier that year. That was something like four hours, even though it was just best of three sets. So I guess there's an alternate universe that we'll never know about in which it really would have mattered. But all these top players, or almost all these top players, are taking the whole week off. And even though the French Open starts on Sunday, very few of the top guys play that Sunday. And I I don't expect to see Nadal play. That's, That's a pretty long time. Rome and Paris aren't that far apart and I, I've also heard this notion that maybe it's too much pressure to be undefeated on clay. He gets that off his back. I think he'd rather feel undefe- unbeatable on clay. I, I don't see any downside to that. There's also this this interesting and a sort of trivial but still interesting stat that he'd never run the table between winning all three clay masters, Barcelona and the French Open. So probably during the two weeks of a slam, then silly stories can creep in. If he had won all four of the lead-up tournaments, someone would have said, well, that means he's not going to win the French. He's never won all five. So, yeah, I think there are there are silly and less silly arguments to be made, but that in general, you want to win every match you play going into a tournament. And part of the concept of warm-up is you get more warm-up. I think Nadal could have benefited from playing Djokovic a, a week later than Madrid on a surface that's closer to the French Opens. And if he'd won that, he probably would have benefited from seeing Zverev in Zverev's current form as opposed to the Zverev he routed in Monte Carlo. Now, speaking of warm-ups, the one player who has not gotten much of a warm-up on clay is Andy Murray. And like I mentioned a minute ago, he's kind of played himself out of the conversation for the French Open, but he still is on top of the rankings. So we we can't ignore him entirely. He showed up... um, he showed up in Rome and lost to Fanini, um, the hometown hero who then lost his following match. Um, is there any way back for Andy Murray? Are we just writing off his clay season at this point? Well, I'm somewhat concerned about his his physical condition in that towards the end of the match, he was yelling, I can't move. And then Fonini said, OK, and hit a whole bunch of drop shots, which was some of the smartest decision making I've ever seen Fonini yeah. make. You know, Murray yells out loud during matches about his body and what it can and can't do often. And he's also one of the most fit and athletic players probably in the history of the tour. So I I don't know, but it's rare to see him get just drop shotted to death uh, on any surface. He's so fast and he didn't run for some of these. Now he has almost two weeks to recover. And the, the nice thing for top seeds at slams is that the first two rounds are going to be against guys outside the top 32, a group that no longer includes the uh, otherwise very dangerous looming Del Potro. So Murray shouldn't really get any major tests the first two matches. The way he's played, he maybe could lose to anyone and he might get, you know, someone like Diego Schwartzman or someone else who's really comfortable on clay and Murray hasn't looked that way this year. But I, I certainly give him a chance to get through those matches and get comfortable and maybe go further. And in best of five, it, it's still very tough to, to outlast Murray. But 
it seems more likely that his quarter will become kind of an open quarter and maybe one where someone like Team or Zverev or Del Potro could take advantage of an opening in the draw or create the opening in the draw by, by upsetting Murray. Yeah, that will be interesting when we when you do see the draw come out because I think a lot of players would be very excited to find themselves in, in Murray's quarter. It's one of these um, scenarios that comes up every once in a while on tour on both tours and it's certainly the case in the WTA now of uh, you get to see players sort of juice their stats on wins against number ones. Like every couple of weeks, uh, somebody else who never had a win against number one gets one because of the generosity of the current number ones. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we see the same thing when some players creep into the top 10. And I remember I, I made the joke after Roberta Vinci got, got into the top 10 that she had a, after her U.S. Open success a couple of years ago, she had a really rough beginning of the next season and all sorts of players were scoring their first wins against top 10s or boosting their top 10 records the same way. Um, now, one thing that we, we've just glancingly touched on the last few weeks that we've, we've been meaning to go deeper on is Americans on clay. And John Isner had a good week in Rome. He made it to the semis. He won a set against Zverev, who, of course, went on to win the tournament. Uh, Sam Querrey also showed up and won a couple matches. He lost a really close match to Dominic Team actually, in the third round. And we discussed our disappointment a little bit in, in the fact that the Americans don't show up in general for the earlier clay tournaments. Uh, some of these guys didn't play before Madrid, so they haven't had much time on clay, even in their career. They haven't had a ton of time on some clay. Some of them skipped Madrid. Yeah, they did. You're right. They skipped Madrid as well. So in, in some cases, they're just showing up for Rome, and then most of them are playing in, in Geneva this week. So they're getting a, a sort of compressed warm-up for the French Open. Um, now, Carl, we've talked about this uh, in non-podcast conversations before, but with some of these big servers, the, the surface effect of, of clay doesn't seem to be as negative as it is for other you know, other really aggressive guys. So someone like John Isner can use a big serve effectively on clay, maybe not quite as much as he does on hard, but it, the fact that he's one-dimensional doesn't mean he's not a factor on clay, obviously, based on his result this week and some of his successes in the past against top players. Can you, can you talk us through that? Like, well, Why is it that a player who we think of as so one-dimensional can be successful on a surface that they're not so comfortable on? Yeah, I mean, I think clay changes the game in a lot of ways, and some of them can work against someone like Isner, but some of them can work in his favor, and maybe more can work in his favor. So, yeah, his his footwork on clay is not going to be at the level of, let's say, Nadal's. But... And and also the the slow nature of the court might reduce his ace count and and make it tougher for him to put away the the first ball and you know he he's not really a master at the net and he doesn't serve in volley as much as some of his uh, volunteer coaches in the tennis media would like to see him do and clay makes it even tougher to put away a volley um, it you know there's more of an advantage to the guy trying to hit the passing shot so so those all might work against him but. His serve is going to be dominant on any surface, and some of those aces that he won't have because it's a slower surface will turn into service winners or, or you know, errors by the by the returner. Uh, he also has a massive kick serve, thanks in part to his his height, one of the tallest on tour, I think six eleven, and the ball kicks up higher on clay, which can be tougher for his opponents. He also gets more time himself to set up for shots 
uh, because of the slow nature of the court. And that can be a big advantage when he's trying to break, but also for the very important third shot of of points when he's serving. Because as dominant as his serve is, a lot of the easy points he gets on his serve come when he gets a weak return and is able to put it away. And he gets more time on clay to get in position and hit the ball. And an advantage that opponents can have against him, including, let's say, Nadal, who he faced in the first round of the French Open, I think, in 2011, a big advantage that many players try to use on clay is to hit with a lot of topspin, both on serve and in the point, and take advantage of that big kick up. But it's hard to kick the ball out of a 6'11 player strike zone, so he can feel more comfortable and deal with fewer low balls. And I think all those things add up to make a surface which might suit him better than grass, where he really has trouble returning serve as much as much as he already has trouble on other surfaces. It's even compounded on grass. Uh, so as, as we all can remember from that 70 to 68 fifth set in, I think it was 2010 against Nicholas Mayut, where neither guy broke for the first 137 games. So yeah, I think I think Isner can be a real factor on clay, and and Raonic was another guy who had a decent tournament before he ran into Zverev, and and Query also not quite a serve dominated game as Isner, but certainly benefits from from his serve uh, showed that he can do well, and that adds an interesting element I think to the French Open. Yeah, absolutely. And one interesting thing with Isner, one of the first things you said was that. He, he does lose some aces because of the surface being a little slower. But looking at his results in Rome, it's pretty fascinating. His his average over the last 52 weeks is to hit an ace on just under one quarter of points. So he's at 23.6% of his service points are aces. And this week in Rome against Ramos in the first round, 34.4% were aces. Against Florian Meyer, 27%. Against Bavrinka in the, the third round was 28%. And against Chilich. It's 20%. So he's in that range almost all the time on clay. And one way I like to think about that is if you have such a dominant serve, obviously he can hit angles, and you mentioned the the kick serve that he has because of his height, that losing a little bit on on the serve doesn't really matter that much. If if you're the sort of person who's going to win you know, 75 80% of service points on a hard court, yeah, you might take a bit of a hit moving on to clay, but when you work out the probability of winning winning service games, holding your serve, 75%, 73%, 71%, if you're winning that many service points, you're pretty much holding serve. I mean, you might have a bad run here and there, but you're almost always going to hold serve, even if you do take a bit of a hit. But as you point out, the, it's a much greater difference at the other end. Like If he can turn a very weak return game into a not-as-weak return game, then that can make a bigger difference. And in these matches, it's often just one or two breaks of serve. So he's not that much more likely to get broken, but he is more likely to, to be a threat on return, as you point out. And you also mentioned the ability to come forward, having a little more time after hitting the shots. And I just wanted to mention the first-round match that we highlighted on last week's podcast between Jack Sock and Diego Schwartzman. Unfortunately for me, as a big Schwartzman fan, Jack Sock pulled that out in three sets. But interestingly enough, Sock was serving volleying quite a bit. And from what I saw, I didn't watch the whole match, but from what I saw, it was pretty effective. And hitting a kick serve on clay gives you a lot of time to move forward. 
and someone like Jack Sock or Query or Isner who isn't super comfortable on the surface, they at least have enough time to get in position for a decent first volley. And when they do that, you know, on a good day, coupled with a big serve, they can be pretty dangerous. And and you know, a Kyle, lot of returners yeah. like to stand way, way back on the surface too to, to get time for the for the serve to kind of settle into their strike zone, like like team, like Nadal at times. So that's another advantage of that tactic. Yeah, absolutely. Schwartzman was doing that. He he lives pretty far back, and that's something that players have occasionally done effectively against Nadal. So um yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong tactic for, for people that are willing to commit to it and have a little bit of, of, of comfort playing on clay. So we're already nearly halfway into this week's episode, and we have not even gotten to the women's side of the draw, and we have a lot to talk about there too. So let's, let's switch gears to the women's side, where the final turned out to be Simona Halep and Elena Svitolina, both of whom we, we actually disagreed over when we were talking year-end top fives a few weeks ago. I, I was strongly uh, behind Simona Halep being a year-end top five, and Carl questioned my pick there. Svitolina was someone you mentioned, Carl, and I questioned that as well. And here they are. They're both strongly in the mix. Um, the, the ELO ratings I just updated put them both in the top five among, uh, among players who were active this, in this whole span of time. Halep actually edged up to number one behind the players who are better but not active very much, like Serena, uh, Azarenka, and Sharapova. So they're both right there at the top of the game. Um, it, Carl, do you think... Yeah, and, and now both in the top five of the race, which is, which is a good sign to be in the top five of the rankings at the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially since you'd have to put both of them heavily in the conversation for Roland Garros. Simona Halep is a pretty heavy favorite um, favorite in betting odds. I think she's at 5-1, to one and Svitolina's at, at 10-1, to one with a few other players behind her there. And with Sharapova out of the French Open draw, uh, without getting she not getting a wild card from the French Federation, um, it really is up for grabs. So, Carl, based on what we've seen this week in Rome, do you think Svitolina is is right up there? Do you, do you put her ahead of everyone else except for Halep uh, going forward to, to Paris? I think so. Uh, it's partly for lack of any other great options. I don't think we've seen too many other players uh, do do anything as singularly impressive as she did in Rome in winning the title and, and beating Halep, who'd been looking pretty unbeatable the last couple of weeks on clay. And all, and just so no, so no one's quite done something as impressive as that, except maybe Siegmund in Stuttgart. But we talked about her as as like an exception uh, at that tournament. Although I'd still probably put her in my top ten or fifteen for the French Open. And then there's really no one else who put together a very strong overall clay campaign. You could say Mladenovic. I've said her name a lot, but she lost in the first round at Rome. And uh, Muguruza, uh, the defending champ in at the French. She had her best performance so far in the, of the clay season by far in Rome, but then pulled out with an injury, so uh, or, or, or at least was injured in, in that last match. So that that is also a cause for concern. And again, her inconsistency anyway during the clay season sort of calls into question her ability to win seven straight matches or maybe even four straight matches. So yeah, I think the finalists in Rome are my two favorites in the tournament, but it's one of those tournaments where you'd give the top two favorites maybe a combined 25% chance or so, which it sounds like the betters have, and not 
maybe a 60% chance uh, that we've sometimes seen, especially recently on the men's side. And you've mentioned also that we should put Venus Williams in this conversation. Uh, she had a decent tournament in Rome. I think she lost to Muguruza. Um, she's not known as a particularly strong player on clay. Uh, she hasn't won a clay title since 2010, and that was in Acapulco, so not a, not a huge event. Um, I'm actually scrolling down and trying to find if she's won a big clay title in anything close to recent memory. And there, you have to go pretty far back to see her as a major threat on clay. But with the draw so open... Do you think she's someone we could see in the semifinals or finals in Paris? It definitely wouldn't shock me. I mean, she showed up in Rome and had a really good tournament, uh, play, played some good matches, and beat some beat some good players. I, I think knocked out Kanta and uh, took a set off Muguruza, which sometimes doesn't mean much, but this seemed like an informed Muguruza. So I... I I wouldn't be surprised here in the semis. I wouldn't be surprised to see her lose in the first round. I think some of her detractors or detractors of her decision-making in recent years have urged her to write off the clay season entirely, which is what Federer is doing this year, someone who's not even as old as she is, just under a theory that Wimbledon is her best chance these days to win a major and grass is her, her best surface and the U S open is also a good event for her. So, so why, why risk injury? Why risk wear and tear on clay? But then again, this year with Azarenka, Sharapova, and Serena Williams all not playing, this is a great opportunity. This could be her first French Open win, so so why not do it? And she is the player in the draw who will have had the best result at the first major of the year because she lost in the final to her sister who isn't there. So, yeah, I, I, I think it, her decision has been vindicated even if uh even if she does lose in the first round she is she has a real chance to win and that's that's a kind of shocking thing to say not only because of her clay court record but because she is closer to 37 than to 36 so let, let's talk about this this flux in in the wta field in general uh, we've we've touched on it on in several episodes already on this podcast but let's dive in a little bit more um, Stephanie Kowalczyk wrote a piece over the weekend on her blog on the T.com, which I, I hope everyone is checking out on a regular basis. And she, she found a number of observations that show that the WTA ranking system is not very predictive this year. Like Angelique Kerber has been number one most of the year and she's not successful at all. Um, I think no number one seeds have won any WTA events this year, which is unprecedented. And, I, I feel like there's a part two to her post coming, so I, I I don't know exactly what direction she's going there. But she she framed it in a way as to to say that the WTA ranking system is failing, and I personally have no love lost for the WTA or ATP ranking systems. I've done a lot of work to try to provide alternative ranking and, and rating systems that that are structured differently and better reflect how well players are playing right now and have have more predictive value. So there's lots of problems with the WTA ranking system. But the initial reaction I had to her piece was that, sure, the ranking system has not been very predictive, but I don't think in this case that it's a failure of the ranking system. I think it's just, I don't know whether it's unprecedented or not, but it's a rare situation where everyone is fairly inconsistent, coupled with the fact that we have some some of the consistent top players like Serena who aren't playing or 
playing very little. And also a bunch of players who are very closely packed. And that's something that, that, that my ELO ratings suggest, that of the active players in the top 10 or 15, there's very, very little separating them. So even if we would, on paper, expect number one in the WTA rank- rankings or in ELO or any other ranking system, even if we'd expect the number one to, to win a tournament more than we'd expect someone else, we're not talking about a huge, like, Djokovic, Djokovic at his peak level of, of predictiveness or Serena at her peak level of predictiveness. We're looking at someone who has just a slightly more likely chance of winning than someone else. So, Carl, where, where do you come down on this? Do you think that... Do you think that what we're seeing this year is something that's wrong with the ranking system, or it's a matter of just an unusual situation where players wouldn't be playing according to any script, official ranking system or not? Well, I think to some extent it's a question that can be answered better than our guessing right now. It you know by uh, I, I often seem to be like assigning you work, and I guess it's something I could look into too, but. By seeing if ELO or the other methods you've you and others have have suggested for ranking players would have done a better job. Like, is is there actually you know we do have some alternatives. So would the alternatives have done a better job of uh, predicting the outcome and I guess therefore serving the game and serving the players because you do want the the seeds and and the entry to reflect who the best players are at any given time but my hunch my strong hunch is is that it's what you say that any ranking system would just not have had much confidence in its predictions and maybe the predictions of who was the best at any given tournament were as good as they could be but sort of like I said earlier about the uh, women's field at the French Open this year it's a case where the top two players have uh, still have combined a pretty small chance of winning the tournament, and you take the field in part because of the inconsistency at the top and in part because of just a lot of really good players clumped together not far behind them. I think one other factor that can drive this on the women's tour this year is there seems to be a real surface effect, and the, ranking, the official rankings take into account all results – and a lot of the highest-ranked players and the players who are highest-ranked in the race as well, so have had really good good years, uh, are not as strong on clay. And I'm thinking of Kerber and Pliskova, Kanta, Wozniacki. Uh, these are all players who uh, their ranking may be more meaningful on hard courts, and then they brought a largely hard court-based ranking into the clay season and played like worse players because they are worse players on clay. Yeah, that's a major factor, and that's something that my ELO ratings don't yet take into account. So that's that's something that, in an ideal world, we'd have a validated surface-specific ELO rating system that would tell us who, on paper, should have been the favorite in any tournament. And what's interesting to me, looking at the last few, well, several weeks, couple of months of WTA results, is I don't know of any system or even any smart prognosticator, with or even with a run of luck, could have predicted what we would have seen in the last few months. Just looking back at the, the higher level events, Indian Wells was won by Elena Vesnina. No system, no human would have picked her. Miami, Joanna Conta, a few people might have picked her, but I don't think any system would have had her as the top player on hard courts uh, a couple months ago. They might have her now, which actually my ELO rating system does now uh, for Conta, but only since her win in Miami. Charleston on clay, Daria Kazakina, nobody saw that coming. 
um, Stuttgart, Laura Ziegemann, <laughs> no one saw that coming. And really to find something that it was even borderline predictable at the premier level is Simona Halep in Madrid. At least she's had success there before. She's known as a good clay court player. She's pretty high up in the rankings. I don't know how many people would have pegged her based on her season so far as a favorite, but that's at least a defensible pick. Svitolina this past week, you have her in the conversation, but I don't think any system or or any smart prognosticator would have picked her. So, And, and in fact, so, yeah, with Halep, I think that's a case where the traditional rankings might have beat, beaten some others just because if we're saying, oh, the rankings have failed us so far this year until Madrid, or at least until the clay season, she was a major exhibit for it, that she was highly ranked for much of the season and was losing early to lower-ranked players. So a system, let's say, that was more reactive, that changed rankings based, weighted more recent results much more heavily might have had her as even less of a favorite in Madrid. That's true. And that might come down to how heavily you weight surface uh, because all of those bad results early in the season came on hard courts. And she's had plenty of success on hard courts in the past. She would have been expected to play a lot better the first couple months of the season. But you can at least imagine a system that would look at her success on clay in the past compared to the rest of the field and, and put her near the top. But you're absolutely right that that's a case where the official rankings might actually might actually win. So so it's interesting. It's something to to look forward to in Roland Garros is to see how this shakes out. And it will also be interesting to see when more of the whole field is back because we're getting another week, another fortnight in Roland Garros without Maria Sharapova. We don't yet know whether she's playing close to her former level. Um, we're going to get, we just found out this morning, actually, that we're going to get Victoria Azarenka back on grass, so earlier than expected. I don't know what the latest is on Petra Kvitova's uh, timetable, but she should be back pretty soon. So by the time we hit the summer hard courts in North America, uh, we could have an entirely different picture. And in, in a way, that will hurt the case for the ranking system even more, both because it will be consistently wrong, because players like, like Azarenka and Kvitova, as they come back, they'll be ranked very low. Um, but it also will, will put some strain on alternative rating systems, because it is so hard to, to, to measure just a few recent results against a longer track record of, of success when that track record was a few years ago. So there, there's a lot to look forward to there. Um, and, you know, Kvitova, I think, will be especially motivated to, to play the grass season because of her success on grass, her two major titles coming at Wimbledon. And, and that, that's another case where not having something surface-specific could, could really uh, add to the difficulty of, of ranking how, how good she really is at that point. Yeah, that's true. And, and grass is, is particularly tough because the sample size is so small. We can point to certain players and say, yes, Kvitova is particularly strong on grass. We all know that. Her, her results make it very clear. But many players who are not quite so dominant on the surface only get to play a few matches every year. So if you have someone who's playing 60 matches a season and only three or four of them are on grass because they had one early exit on the surface, then it's really tough to to have much predictive value for, for how we should expect them to play on the surface. So we've been talking throughout this, this podcast episode about forecasting Roland Garros, specifically about the WTA just now. On the men's side, we were talking about that earlier. Obviously, Rafa's the favorite. We've got some other guys who are in the conversation. But Carl, it sounds like you're, you're still hanging on with Djokovic as your number two favorite. Is that right? I am. It's... Certainly plausible. I have a hard time disagreeing with that. 
Um, let's let's talk a little bit about qualies, which actually are underway. It's, it's... Should we should we just since since we did just bring up Djokovic again, should we talk about the other big news in his camp and and what's going on with with him at the French Open? Of course, we should have talked talked about that already. So he he has signed on for at least a trial run with Andre Agassi and Carl. That's something that you. I forget whether you were crediting Carol Bouchard with this or whether this was your own idea, but you were speculating that, that would be an interesting matchup. Yeah, I think she had mentioned it to me the day before you and I spoke, and she she has a newly out book about Djokovic's run to the French Open and to four straight majors last year, and just mentioned the extreme similarities in their games. And I, I mentioned it, but then also was somewhat dismissive because I thought it was unlikely that Agassi would um, would would want to get so involved in today's game. Uh, it's also a little off brand because of the all the mileage he got out of insisting that he hated tennis while in his uh, autobiography and, and while promoting it. But there's been a lot of evidence he doesn't hate tennis and that he pays attention to the game and he he gives pretty astute commentary when. When called upon, it, it wouldn't take a very close focus on the game to see the similarities with Djokovic and also the ways in which Djokovic has surpassed him, both in terms of you know his actual tools and, and also in his results. So I think it's an incredibly exciting pairing, even though I don't normally find these coaching relationships all that exciting, it, just because it, it is one of those scenarios that feels more like the drunken discussion of what would be a cool pairing. Uh, It's sort of like if Sampras decided suddenly that he wanted to be more involved in tennis and and paired up with Federer, who who often talks about his only meeting on tour with Sampras as as one of his career highlights, if not the career highlight. Um, So who knows if it'll actually help. I'm not all that excited in terms of like this will turn everything around for Djokovic because I I think coaching is overrated, but it's, it's just it's more like I wish that I could listen in when these two greats with such similar games talk to each other and, and what are they saying to each other and what what can Agassi impart to Djokovic that Djokovic doesn't already know or is it more of the kind of uh, inspirational talk that people sometimes ascribe to these super coaches of they've seen everything, they've done it all, and so their words, even if they're the same as what another coach would say, or, or no, le- no more insightful. Maybe it's just the inspiration that comes from hearing it from someone like Agassi, who had a really good career in his 30s, and Djokovic turns 30 today, and and would aspire to do the same, to to be able to stay relevant, be number one, win majors in his 30s. Yeah, and something else you mentioned when we first were discussing Djokovic's coaching situation a few weeks ago is I, I think you said that. Djokovic wouldn't need someone to be at his side every week at every tournament he plays, and that might be something that is is appealing to Agassi because he's very comfortable in Las Vegas. He has stayed away from the game at least physically, so he probably doesn't want to hop on tour and and go to fifteen tournaments a year. But the slams, sure, um, serving as sort of a, a long distance consultant. That, that seems much more plausible. And as I think you pointed out when we discussed it before, that is probably all Djokovic really needs. I mean, you can make an argument, and I mentioned something to this effect before, that he doesn't really need any coach. Uh, you can be very effective as a veteran on your own, uh, but 
he doesn't need a lot of input if he does choose to go the super coach route. So it might actually be something that works out. And and I I'm with you that it's it. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in their conversations and just the fact that we'll get some of that second hand in press conferences with Djokovic and probably more press that Agassi will do now as long as he's working with Djokovic. Uh, we will hopefully get some insight into into how this relationship is working and what it's going to do for Novak's game. Yeah, and you mentioned that maybe Agassi will be game to travel to the majors. And I've said before that one thing I like about tennis is that the former greats are so involved. I mean, we saw Rod Laver in Rome, uh, and I, I don't normally associate him with the Rome tournament, although he won it a couple of times. But Laver, I think, can pretty much be flown to and seated in a, in a great spot in just about any tournament in the world that he wants. Um, and, and the other thing that intrigues me is that, speaking of the long-distance effect and that Agassi wouldn't need to physically be there, is the tools are kind of there now for people who want to get coaching remotely. Actually, if you and I want a breakdown of our games from Darren Cahill and I think other kind of super coaches like him, there are services online where you can upload video of yourself and get feedback. One of my friends did it with Cahill and got some really good feedback. Obviously, at the professional level, the ability to do that is is greatly heightened. And, and for someone with the potential budget of Djokovic, who's got the all-time highest earnings on tour, plus all his, his off-court earnings, you know, every player gets a login to Tennis TV and, and to the other services, I found out recently, although it's kind of obvious when you think of it. A- any match that Agassi wants to see of Djokovic's, including in the past, he can find uh, – at the slams, there are pretty detailed breakdowns given to all the players that could be shared. I'd be interested in that aspect, too, of um, what is the sort of ultimate remote coaching that can be done on tour and, and who's who's sort of the, the ultimate in that. I could see someone like Murray, for instance, having thought this through the, with his team and set up the, the optimal system. Uh, but I've heard it even on doubles, like the Bryans will mention that their coach won't always travel with them, but will get all the video they need. They can video chat. And, and suddenly having the person there is more just about having someone to look up to in your box and for encouragement during matches. And the extent to which that helps and the extent to which that's needed varies. But all the other coaching can be done uh, without that. Yeah, Um one thing that I hope we'll get to before this podcast is out is some of the new rules that were just announced for the, the next-gen finals in Milan, one of which is some lim- not on-court coaching exactly, but mid-match coaching. But let's let's put that on the back burner for a minute. Like you say, I wouldn't be surprised to find that someone like Andy Murray has already figured out some of, of what long-distance coaching can be because he, he doesn't... In his time with Ivan Lendl, he, Lendl hasn't always been there full-time, for example. Uh, and I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of super coaches who aren't around all the time. Um, now, I should point out a, this sort of obligatory snark is that long-distance coaching is a lot easier for the ATP than it is for the WTA because it's easy to find ATP matches. Uh, I'm sure players have a better deal for for getting access to match video than you and I do, but it's a pretty dire situation on the women's tour right now. And that's something that we'll need to dive into in more detail in a future episode. And now that you mentioned that, Ben Rothenberg tweeted this week that a coach on the WTA said that it is dire, that, that it is really hard to get video even for them, which 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 ma- which makes me feel just much more pessimistic about what, what's going on over there and, and how in control they are of their video situation. But like you say, we can get into more detail on that in another episode. 
Man, I, I didn't see that tweet. That's mind-blowing. I mean, I just, I, I can't believe that. I mean, I, since I watch a lot of matches and I, I need full match video to chart matches for the match charting project, I've I figured out a lot of ways, on varying, varying positions on the continuum between legal and illegal to uh, access match video and... I've mostly figured out how to get everything, but it does it does take a lot of work. And I just kind of always imagined there was there was some way that players and coaches could get the good stuff, basically the WTA equivalent of tennis TV. But apparently not, and that that's pretty bleak. And Steve Simon has said it could be next season before there's a streaming package. So that's that's pretty horrible. Fortunately, at the Slams, it's well, I guess the, there's a fortunate and unfortunate aspect. Tennis TV was never a factor at the Slams, and there is a lot of coverage from from other networks, depending on what country you're in. So most of us are able to watch plenty of women's tennis during the Slams, but there are also a lot of matches on outer courts that are a little tougher to track down. So so it is a factor during during the majors as well. Uh, so Carl, we had a couple of notes of things to talk about with the qualifying tournament for Roland Garros. Um, it, it turns the big surprise was Maria Sharapova not only didn't get a main draw wild card, she wasn't given a qualifying wild card either, which I think is a, a huge opportunity blown. Uh, an, an interesting contrast to that is that Sarah Arani, uh, because her ranking has fallen so low, she did enter qualies. So we have a, a, a former finalist who who is in the qualifying draw, even if she's probably not nearly the player that Sharapova is at this point. But most of the players in in qualifying are your typical mix of youngsters working their way up, and lots of players who have just hovered in that 100 to 250 ranking range for years, and we, we learned we learn their names, but we don't learn a lot about them. They're not really building a, uh, they're, not, they're not future stars by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, is there anything that you're looking at in particular during qualities this week? Well, I think inevitably we're going to be more interested in the youngsters than the oldsters, because other than someone like Arani, who who was in the top ten and has fallen, and w- would be interesting to see play play her way in and, and see what happens because she had a, a semifinal on clay this season. Uh, the the other players who are kind of the perennial qualifiers are mostly cannon fodder for the early rounds. I, I don't expect to see them go far, but the the younger players, even if if they too don't have a great chance to go far in the main draw. Uh, we, we may see them in many main draws to come, and we may see some of them in the next-gen finals, which we just talked about. So, yeah, I think uh, Shapovalov, uh, is that how you say the young Canadian's name? Uh, yeah, Dennis Shapovalov. Uh, and t- tell me again how to pronounce the Norwegian teenager whose name I'll say many times in coming years. Oh, you can just say Kasper Rud. It sounds a little different from a Norwegian's mouth, but okay. um, I, I do not yet have the accent down. So you live in Norway and just... say that. That's good enough for me. Uh, yeah. Imer is, is is always exciting to watch. Uh, there are a couple of Americans, Kozlov, Mamo. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I thank you for compiling that list, and I think those are all interesting players to watch. And also, as you noted, it's, it's a shame that uh, Potapova didn't get a wild card into qualifying. I think... Uh, someone very young who uh, might already be playing the juniors is exactly the kind of player that you should give a wild card into qualifying um, to, to give them a chance to, uh, to, to get matches against professionals and maybe even make their way into the main draw. 
uh, and, and where their ranking may not reflect where their ability has already risen to because they've been playing much lower level tournaments. So, uh, some, you know, as much as the FFT got attention for their Sharapova wildcard decision, I think not giving Irani a main draw wildcard and giving it to someone even lower ranked who's French or not giving certain players who aren't French uh, wildcards into qualies are maybe tougher to justify. Yeah, and I think I'm developing a bit of a hobby horse about what I'm about to say, so I hope it isn't annoying on the first pass, since it certainly will be on the 10th. But on the topic of someone like Potapova, um, I've been watching a lot of women's ITFs the last couple of years in, in my quest to chart matches of players outside the top 100. And, and while some of them are very interesting, some players are very promising, there's a lot of tennis at the, the second or third tier level that's actually pretty bad. And... The reason I say that is that, or the reason I bring it up in this context, is for someone like Potapova, they're at the top of their game as a junior. And she's, she's basically dominating the juniors. And we've seen in the past, not, in the, not so much in the last decade or so, but going back 15, 20 years, players who were able to immediately make an impact at the top level. Um, certainly someone like, someone like the Williams sisters, someone like Martina Hingis, who are able, as 16, 17, 18-year-olds, be able to play really, really well at the top level. And this could be pure speculation, and it could certainly be wrong, but I think there's a possibility that when players have, have to work their way up slowly through the ranks, they end up playing less effectively because they have to change their games a little bit to slog through matches against players who aren't that good, but have figured out ways to win. There's something to be said for figuring out how to, how to beat those players. But I would, the point being, I'd like to see someone like Potapova have more chances to make the jump straight to the top. And I don't know whether that would mean having some kind of junior entry system for slam qualifying, maybe give, give wild cards to slam qualifying for the top two or three ranked juniors on each side or something like that. I, I haven't even thought about the details of implementation for something like that, but that's the sort of player I'd be really excited to see in qualifying. I think you and I are probably on the same page here. When, when we look at a qualifying draw, we're looking for the guys who could use the qualifying tournament as a big breakthrough. So someone like Kaspar Ruud or Stefano Tsitsipas, who, the, the Greek youngster who already won today. Um, when we see someone like Matthew Ebden or Facundo Bagnis, uh, it's tough to get excited about that unless... It's Tim Smichek, and you're a big Tim Smichek fan. But I think a lot of people can get excited about Anastasia Potapova in one of her first qualifying draws or someone like Kaspar Ruud. Uh, so I'd love to see more of that. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting contrast because I think you – another hobby horse is giving players who are already in their 20s who have already had a bunch of chances at the top level and not taken advantage. Giving them wild cards feels like a waste. But – I, it's it's an interesting contrast of when we're talking about someone who's a teen and has only played at those lower levels and shown a lot of promise, those initial wild cards can actually separate the the ones who can be uh, future great pros from the ones who uh, maybe their game won't translate to that next level and, and won't really do much with wild cards once they're in their 20s. Yep. So since we're talking about youngsters, let's talk about the next-gen finals. For those of you who don't keep up with this weird thing, um, it's a tournament the ATP has announced for, I think it's it's the first week in November, right before the World Tour Finals in London, and the top eight players age 21 or younger 
will play a round robin, just like the format of the World Tour Finals in terms of the bracket, but the format they've just announced is going to be way different. They're using a different scoring system. There's a possibility of mid-match coaching. There's going to be a shot clock. Uh, they're playing no-let serves. There's a couple other things. I've forgotten about it. I wrote a piece for The Economist that was that was published just yesterday about that. So if you want to get a, a, a more in-depth treatment, you can look there. Uh, but the big thing is the scoring system. And the scoring system involves no ad games. So seventh point at deuce, it's a deciding point. I'm assuming it's receiver's choice to go with the deuce court or the ad court, like in doubles. And... There, it's best of five sets, but the sets are first to four games, not six. And they play a tiebreak at three all. So get to three all, play a tiebreak. Otherwise, sets end four two, four one, four. Long. And it's a tiebreak first to five, right? Is it first to five? I did not read that. Uh, you know, I think okay. that's what some uh, events, some exhibitions with the same format have done. Maybe they're not doing that in Milan. Okay. I had I haven't read that from Milan, and I don't think that anything that ATP has released is particularly formal or authoritative. They've just sort of given us an, one more step of teasing about what to expect in at the tournament. So I've I've run a lot of the numbers. We can get into that in a moment. But but Carl, I'm curious about your your reaction to a system like that. Does it make you more interested, less interested, um, disdainful, excited? Where do you stand on this? I am all for experimentation. So it makes me more excited. I. I, coaching, I feel like, is a separate issue, both because it's not really that innovative to use at this level and that the WTA has had it for years. Uh, but the, the other parts, I, I think the ATP has tested some of these things at the challenger level. No lets uh, on serves, I think, was very unpopular with players, at least initially, and they dropped it. I think they've tested the shot clock. Juniors has tested the shot clock, like at the U.S. Open last year. But in terms of matches that count for ATP points, this is taking some of the formats of things like World Team Tennis and the IPTL and and actually taking it to a tournament that counts and that I think will be pretty high profile in that, uh, especially if Zverev decides to play, because he'll almost certainly qualify, uh, should feature some exciting young players and, you know, will be kind of in an off week. And the ATP is certainly hyping it relentlessly. And... You know, I, 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 I've been thinking a lot about why tennis isn't bigger than it is even after the era of the Williams sisters and really during the era still of the Williams sisters and the big four on the men's side. And the variable length of matches, as much as I love it and a lot of hardcore fans love it, could certainly be a factor. The calendar is, is long and varied enough that there's room for different formats. Not every tournament has to be so similar. And... On a personal level, I've tried using this format quite a bit recently. It's been my my main way of playing singles recently with my most frequent singles partner, and it's it's pretty fun. Like I, I get that really long deuce games are exciting, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just kind of errors by both players, and don't really end up changing anything. Like if they happen at four love in a set, uh, this this way there's a quick reset. The sets themselves end quickly, so if you if you're down in a set, you have another chance in the next set soon. So I, I think as your numbers show and my experience uh, validates, it, it can be a pretty exciting format without giving uh, the favorite more of a chance of, of getting upset. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing to me. is it, So it, in the piece I did for The Economist, I, I, I ran the numbers on various win probability stats and 
we'll skip over the details for the, the podcast right now since we're running out of time here. But in conclusion, I found that it's not quite as exciting in terms of how much impact every point has on the outcome compared to a traditional best of three like we saw in Rome last week. But it's close. It's not a huge difference. It's not nearly as as bad in terms of, of, of limiting excitement, especially at the extreme ends, as the doubles format of no-ad games and a, a third-set super tiebreak. So it's a step in the right direction there. And what's particularly effective is having the trade-off of more sets, best of five instead of best of three, but shorter sets to four instead of to six, is it's almost exactly as favorable to the favorite. So to give an example there, if you have someone like Zverev playing Borna Cioric, who might be the number two seed at the at the next-gen finals, if you take a typical best-of-three match using their current ELO ratings, um, you'd give Zverev about a 72% chance. That was before his Rome run, so it might be a little higher now, but 72% sounds about right for that matchup. And if you then run the same players through the, a system with best-of-five, first-of-four in each set, it ends up being almost exactly the same, like 71.6% or something like that. So unlike something as as extreme as like the, the tiebreak 10s or doing like a a pro set type of situation, uh, you end up still having the, the, the players you expect to win winning most of the time. And that's something that I think you and I have discussed this off the podcast before, Carl, that there's there are certain patterns across sports that, that seem to recur, like that favorites win about two-thirds of the time, things like that, that that seem to be satisfying to fans. Like, you need to somehow balance some luck so the underdogs will win sometimes without being so random that it's basically just a lottery ticket. And I think any new system that comes along needs to take that into account. So something like tiebreak 10s might be fun a couple times a year, but you certainly couldn't turn over the whole season to something as random and chaotic as, as tiebreak 10s. But something like this, at least in, in these two dimensions of excitement and probability that the favorites win, it's, it serves the same purpose as the traditional scoring system. Yeah, and I think there's room for running simulations of every possible combination of like number of games, no add or, or add, and, and finding what, what is optimal. But it, it's encouraging already that this seems like it delivers a much faster match and a, much, a match of a much more predictable length without detracting from in a significant way from two of the things we want from a, from a format. I also want to just quickly advocate for the serve clock. I mean, it's been a hobby horse of mine for years that players take too long between points and regularly flout the rules. And I don't blame them because nobody enforces them. And in fact, players feel entitled to uh, complain to umpires when they are warned, even though it doesn't actually cost them anything in terms of serve or point when they're warned that they're going too long. So, you know, I think as you've pointed out, taking away let serves or, or, or making it so that a serve that hits the let cord counts if it lands in has almost no effect on the length of a match, whereas shortening time between points, because that happens, you know, 100 plus times in most matches, that could have a really big effect. And I think also just that ratio of action to non-action is a good measure for how fun it is to watch something. The analogy to me is that Major League Baseball is trying to shorten its format, too, and the automatic assigning of an intentional walk instead of throwing four balls has almost no impact on the length of a game, whereas if they actually enforce time between pitches, that could have a really big impact. Yeah, that's something that 
that I was going to say as well, I was going to make the exact same analogy between tennis and baseball there with time between points or time between pitches. There's a was a fantastic study, I guess, done by a, a baseball blog called the McCovey Chronicles, which is a, a Giants fan blog, where the, the writer found a 2017 game and found a corresponding game from the early 80s, I think it was, that had almost exactly the some, same number of at-bats, same number of pitching changes. It, would, it was as close as he could come to the exact same game. And I forget what the exact difference was, but it was like 45 minutes shorter. And what he discovered was, yes, there's more advertising. Yes, the pitching changes are a little bit longer. So the things that we that typically get blamed for increasingly long baseball games were factors. But the biggest thing was pitchers and batters fiddling around between pitches. It just didn't happen 30 years ago, and it does happen um, almost without fail between every pitch now. And it's the same thing with the high-profile matches that people are watching, uh, like the finals between players like Nadal and Djokovic. They are always really slow. You, you can turn in, tune into an early round and, and get someone like like a Jack Sock-Benoit pair match, and it does feel like a match from the 80s where... Players are just picking up the ball and serving. But it's more common, if you're watching a match on television, it's between two players, at least one of whom is pushing the boundaries as far as they can possibly get away with and taking 30, 40 seconds between points, which is incredibly boring. I mean, I hardly know how boring it is anymore since I, I've made the decision to almost entirely watch matches on replay and skip through uh, those dead times between points and I, I know tennis is a lot more enjoyable that way. So I have my reservations about the shot clock. I, I think it could be distracting, especially if you want the crowd to stay silent. But I am curious to see how it works out. It, it seems like that is that is the main problem with match length that needs to be addressed. And as you mentioned, I did the study that no let serving has almost no effect. But in that Economist piece, I, I, I established that the average match would be about 20 minutes shorter. Uh, at least at the current rate of time between points, would be about 20 minutes shorter with the next-gen finals format, and it would almost eliminate really long matches, just like the the doubles format of no ad and third-set super tie-breaks has virtually eliminated long doubles matches as well. There's been, I think, three or four doubles matches in all of 2017 so far, That besides the Australian Open, but the ATP doubles matches that have gone beyond the two-hour mark. So... If you want schedule predictability, if you want to be able to you know, schedule matches over the course of a day for 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and be pretty sure that that television can count on that, that viewers can count on that, this is one way to do it. You're almost never going to have uh, a conflict between ATP and WTA schedules. You're never going to have an unpopular doubles match bleed into the time slot of a more high-profile singles match. So there is a lot of potential there, and the traditionalist in me is certainly willing to see what happens uh, to, to see how this, uh, see how the system looks in practice because there is some potential there. Well, I know we, we should wrap up, but just a couple of quick things. One, I think really smart to do it with the younger players. Like they tried no let with challengers, but there are a lot of older guys who are more set in their ways and maybe see their already meager, meager livelihood at stake. Whereas this is kind of a bonus tournament and it's young players who maybe are less, uh, opposed to experimentation, uh, maybe more, more into fast pace and, and also can establish habits now that are harder to break later, including on time between points. Uh, I, I also, 
and you know, and, and also they're in that demographic that that tennis and other sports are fighting for the younger players who younger people who perhaps have have less patience for long and unpredictably long matches. Uh, I also had a quick question: Does the next gen finals include doubles as the World Tour finals does? I don't believe so. And on something else you mentioned before, I don't think there are ranking points at stake either. So it's, it's, it's just money. Matches. It's just money, so it doesn't really count. Um, it's it's some somewhere between an exhibition and an actual tour event. And I guess that's fair enough. Although, um, yeah, that that'll certainly lessen its impact and popularity. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how much it will really matter. In, in as you point out, the ATP is flogging it really hard, so we can expect to increasingly hear more about it, and we're already hearing an awful lot about something that is more than five months away. And it is at a point in the season where at least people who are interested in tennis are particularly interested in tennis with that lead-up to the World Tour Finals and coming on the heels of a, a Masters event in Paris. So there should be plenty of interest, regardless of whether the whether there are points there. Uh, and particularly if someone like Zverev is not in London, but does choose to play in Milan. So it, it could have a lot of interest. So, Carl, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrap things up for this week? Not really. As you note in our notes, there isn't that much to be excited about in terms of the, tor- the warm-up tournaments this week. So I think uh, we should we should regroup next week when the French Open is in full swing. And if anything big happened this week, we can we can touch on it then. Yeah, I, I did want to just briefly mention that I will be paying attention to the, the ATP 250 in Lyon since it's the first time we're seeing Nick Kyrgios since Madrid, and he's someone that we've repeatedly come back to as a dark horse in Paris. And also Del Potro's there. He had a pretty rough loss to Djokovic last week, but he's always a factor as well. So it's a, it's a strong draw for a 250. Um, Vavrinka's playing in Geneva, so there are interesting players in action on the men's side. Um, but... Yeah, in the, in the grand scheme of things, the, the pre-slam 250s are, are usually pretty far down the list of, of important factors before the slam itself. So, Carl, thank you as always. Thanks, Jeff. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to Episode 8 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. And next week, it will be Roland Garros underway, and we'll be back with you then.